0: Hello, I'm Letitia McClough.
1: and I'm Andrew O'Brien
0: and you're listening to the The Virgin Virgin Gardener Gardener
1: podcast (laughs)
0: Andrew. Hello,
1: Letitia. How have you been?
0: Well, it's been a long, dry summer, hasn't it? Yes, I know. It's been have you been coping with this weather?
1: Well, I, I'm really glad that the, uh, the rain has finally come. You know? I
0: quite agree with you. I've got to say, when I think back to March and how freezing I was and how much I desperately wanted summer to come and now it's here and it's doing this to me I take it all back (laughs) I I, I I just can't stand it, I can't do it Yeah you were desperate
1: weren't you for the hot weather and now you can't do it I was,
0: I think you know it's very much like osteopathy when this when they say the very best position is the next one and I think <laughs> I think I think that's very true of weather isn't it yeah and
1: I'm really looking forward. Well, I'm always looking forward to autumn actually but I'm particularly looking forward to it now because um, yeah. I'm fed up of summer to be perfectly honest with you
0: so what have you been up to tell me well, it's been, there's been
1: been a, on? A, I know making a joke of it there has been an awful lot of watering because even things like the prairie plants that um. I really look forward to it this time of year because they kind of, when the garden's starting to look a bit tired, you've got kind of dahlias and rebeccas and things like that. You know, the big daisies, the big grasses, and they Mm. look fabulous at this time of year. But even they have been looking a little bit tired. So, yeah, more watering than I'm used to.
0: Yeah, same here. I've been, um, actually, we made a decision as a family um, not to bathe. And I'm not saying we're smelly because the only way that we (laughs) bathe is under the sprinkler. So we've decided only to bathe. Or bathe in inverted commas <laughs> under the sprinkler. So out we go every other day. Come okay. on, we do, You don't bathe every day, do you? So out we go every other evening under the sprinkler. It's boiling hot. Who cares? Yeah, and um, the neighbours don't the mind. Kind of, you know, no, ha- neighbor, naked no, family next no, door. No, gosh. Um, and, and the grass, uh, the grass gets watered. And honestly. I mean, for my mental health, um, I need to have just something cool and damp <laughs> under my feet when I go out. I, honestly, the, the, the parched brownness, I couldn't yeah. deal with it. It's
1: not good, is it? And you've been away <laughs>
0: I have. I went to Wales, which was delightfully misly.
1: Oh, really? Oh, misly. That's yeah. a good word. And the thing is, you've left me in charge. So in your I absence, have indeed. I, I have indeed. In. Or
0: rather, rather you, you let me go away. I mean, <laughs> go either <laughs> way, Andrew. Thank you very much. No, but all... I hear you've been interviewing the wonderful Naomi Slade. Tell me about that.
1: I have. She's fabulous. She's got a new book out, which um, I talked to her about in the interview. And that's all about dahlias. Um, but before we get <gasps> on to that, I know, isn't that great? Um, perfect timing for this time of year. Uh, And then we talked a little bit about her sort of background and uh, the other books that she's written before getting in there. And it was just a really good chat. There's lots of sort of little anecdotes about that because it's a fantastic history. And there's some uh, tasty little bits of science in there as well.
0: (gasps) That is what I love about Naomi, is that she's a proper biologist. So that's her background. And that's what I'm really looking forward to on this
1: podcast. It's great. So I hope everyone's really going to enjoy that. Shall we... um... Shall we fire that up then? Let's do it. Today we're going to be talking about dahlias, those bright, cheerful extroverts that encapsulate all of the sun-kissed wonder of summer in their fabulous flowers. And I'm delighted to have with me Naomi Slade, who has a book on dahlias that's published the very week we're recording this episode. Now, I don't know about you, but I often think some of the most interesting people we come across are quite hard to pin down in one or two words, and Naomi falls into that category. Garden designer, broadcaster, journalist, author, presenter, naturalist. The list is long, and that's not even half of it. Naomi I think you defy description but needless to say you are very welcome to the Virgin Gardener podcast.
2: Thank you very much indeed it's great to be here.
1: I'm so glad we actually managed to get you on the show because you're one of those gardeners who I think has always had an innate love of of plants and the natural world but whose career has embraced quite a wide range of different roles along the way. I mean it's not as if you emerged straight from university as a fully fledged garden writer and broadcaster. Could you tell us a bit about the path you followed to get where you are today
2: well yes absolutely well when i finished my degree which was biology with lashings of botany and ecology and good things like that i kind of thought about it all i didn't really want to work in a lab so i sort of wandered around for a bit i rapidly discovered i was a terrible barmaid <laughs> i had a fun gig um, wandering around the top of tour buses on york going on your left is clifford's tower on your right is york Minster. Oh, hey I'm romans <laughs> um Then I had a series of minor jobs in publishing, some of which Mm. were fun, some of which less so. Um, Then I threw it all in to manage rock bands for a couple of years. Oh, wow. uh, Which was (laughs) was really good fun. Very different. Yes, it was great. Lots of late nights. Yeah, I bet. Very poor money. Um, And then I got a job um, on Witch Gardening magazine and I managed their shows and events. Mm. And uh, I ran 64... Shows, events, all sorts of things in four years. Um, wow. Got myself uh, three Chelsea Silver Gilt medals, and then I went for freelance and reinvented myself as a journalist.
1: And here I am. What was it that kind of tipped you into the freelance bit? Because that's usually a turning point, isn't it? You suddenly you get to a point and you think, oh, hang on a minute, I'd rather be doing this for myself, or doing something for myself, and then.
2: Uh... Well, yes, in a way. Um, I got a little bit tired of running the events and you know the whole the whole landscape was Mm. changing um and it got the the opportunity came up to take redundancy. So I did. I, I took the money and ran and, uh, and decided that I was going to go my own way. Um, and I've been going my way ever since in various ways. And
1: very successfully too. And you, you seem to be making a habit of writing about people's favourite plants. And your most recent book, this one on dahlias, um, which is about to come out, um, your previous book was a beautiful celebration of growing tree fruit in your garden. And let's face it, who doesn't love an apple crumble? And before that was a critically acclaimed book on snowdrops. Um, During the process of that, you actually had a snowdrop named after you, which is an amazing accolade. Can you tell us a bit about that?
2: Well... It was, that, was, that was amazing. Um, and it's the Plant Lovers' Guide to Snowdrops, published by Timber Press. And the whole process is a mm. wonderful voyage of discovery. I've always loved snowdrops, uh, ever since I was quite small. I even had a rabbit called Snowdrop when I was about nine. Um, and <laughs> it was just wonderful to find out more about the plant, so about their significance for candle math, mm. that they get theft, get stolen because they can be really expensive. Um, and mm-hmm. I, in the process, I was talking to Joe Sharman, who's at Monk Silver Nursery out in Cambridgeshire. And we got on really well, and he was mm-hmm. super helpful and the book came out and he mm-hmm. said, "Oh, well, would you like snowdrop named after me?" It's like would I? Um, it... <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> um, and then about a fortnight later, some snowdrops turned up, basically with my name attached on a plant label. It was like, oh my goodness, Galanthus Regini oh, near me Slade. How exciting is that?
1: That's fantastic. That was... can, you, can you buy those now? You
2: can. You can buy them. I th- I'm sure you can get them from Monk Silver Nursery. Um, and I have met people who've who said, oh yes, I have you in my garden. It's like, oh, well, that's nice. <laughs> 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 and the Orchard Book uh, is an Orchard Odyssey published by green books and that's very very different yeah that's a kind of a it's a grand tour of landscape fruit and trying to encourage people Mm. to see tree fruit in a new light so they can have a sense of ownership and appreciation Mm. that i felt until quite recently was lacking um, for orchard fruit particularly
1: do you think that's something that people have sort of lost yes
2: yes i think people have lost contact and connection with um Orchards, particularly, I think, they're something that they would love to have, but they perceive as something that is which is long gone. Whereas, in fact, um, there's this great definition of an orchard, which is five trees with crown edges not more than 20 meters apart, and that's a huge space. I've probably got eight tree fruit, um, tree fruit trees in my own tiny weenie garden just here. Um, so I think you can have an orchard in a very small space. And that's not even counting landscape fruit like mulberries and walnuts and things you get in parks.
1: Yeah. And it's so good, isn't it? Because they're, they're actually really low maintenance. Once you've got it established, you've just got this fantastic resource that plops out fruit straight for, you know, for very little investment in well, time or anything year after year
2: well said well said i mean that's certainly certainly the case i mean as far as grow your own goes it astonishes me that with the great bubbling grow your own that's happened over the last 20 years that um, orchard fruit were kind of on on the on the back end of it rather than those sort of little dodgy sort of cut and come again lettuce things that over herbs
1: absolutely you know. it's just crazy isn't it i think perennial fruit and food is the way to go definitely yeah, definitely Right, let's get down to dahlias then. Um, I'm going to put my cards on the table and come out as a complete dahlia fan, whether they're grown for big I- exhibition blooms or-, or left to get on with their own thing brightening up the flower beds in the garden. But... If any flower's been a fashion victim in its time, it's probably the dahlia. What do you think it is about them that's made them so divisive over the years?
2: Well, it's an interesting question, because they are divisive. Um, In the 19th century, Mm. dahlias were a rich man's game, so there was great effort to create new and exciting cultivars, and they were incredibly expensive. Um... And then they gained wider popularity at their Great Exhibition in London in 1851. And then there's this massive clamour for, for dahlias when they were grown, they were selected for the show bench, and they got larger and gaudier and more perfect. And I mm. think eventually, some, some decades down the line, it became an element of it was somebody else's unachievable session. Um So dahlias went from this like big fat flowers full of bling and, and tastes changed. they became less popular and there's this perception they're hard to grow so by the mid 20th century there was a notable thumbs down about dahlias and they were sort of kept on in some gardens I think Christopher Lloyd was a big dahlia fan Um, but they Mm. were definitely de classe they were not the thing anymore.
1: Yeah they are definitely plants that take a fair bit of input aren't they and there's the pinching out and staking and sort of disbudding and deadheading. And then there's the whole question of what to do with them over the winter. Do you, do you think they're worth all that effort? Or do you think we should just grow something a little less high maintenance? You're asking me? Yeah, I know. It's a bit of a silly question. <laughs> I've
2: got this great book on coming out this week, Andrew. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, dailys, they're fantastic. They're absolutely worth the effort. And you know, I, th- I think they're not actually that much effort, really. And they're fabulous and they're versatile and they look yeah. fantastic in borders and in vases and they can have big ones and tiny ones and they can be as brash or as subtle as you really want. And I really think you know, there's so many different colours and, and varieties. There's a daily for every... Haste and scheme. Yeah. And, and they're really cool too. And um, there's the genetics. So we we as humans are, are diploid. We've got two sets of chromosomes. Mm. Dahlias, they're octoploids. they've got eight sets of chromosomes. Wow. And they've got also they've got loads of transposons, which are mobile pieces of genetic material that sort of skip around in the genes and spontaneously change what the dahlias look like.
1: And that's why you get such a variety, yeah?
2: That's absolutely it, yes. Yes, they're very, very plastic, you know, they they uh, mutate very, very quickly. Um, and that's why you've got something like 60,000 named cultivars worldwide they you know they're massively massively diverse that's huge it's huge it really is and <laughs> um, the, the history is fantastic they appeared in um, Depictions of Aztec rituals, kind of in in a parallel to the sun with rays around a flaming core, and there's just the flowers themselves. I mean, some of them. Did you know some of them have this cool iridescent effect, no. a bit like they've been sprinkled in gold dust. Oh wow! Take a look at yellow, particularly yellow dahlias and orange dahlias. I've noticed it on, um, but it's like it's like the sort of they're, they're petals actually shiny. Um, Hamari Gold is a good example. Oh, fantastic. So there's lots and lots to like about dahlias.
1: Oh, absolutely. One of the things I love about dahlias is that sheer variety of shapes and sizes, from your simple open-faced daisy types to flowers that look like pom-poms and others that look like anemones or peonies, and, and probably my favourite, the ones that look like crazy sea urchins, which are called cactus dahlias. And there's a great story about the origins of that particular form, which you include in your book.
2: Oh, certainly, yes. So um, coming from Central America... Their uh, dahlias arrived in Europe in 1789, sent as a consignment to Spain. But cactus dahlias didn't arrive uh, until fairly late in the, uh, in the dahlia history. Um, they came in in 1872. And the story goes that a box of really badly rotted plants arrived in Utrecht. Um, and it was, didn't look very promising at all. But the nurseryman there s- sort of sifted through all the manky, slimy material and found a tiny, weeny bit of living plant, which he planted. <laughs> Being, you know how it goes you know
1: oh, it might grow let's have yeah. a go uh, oh it did just hopeful <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, and it turned into this scarlet flower which was highly double with petals that were rolled tightly backwards um which was called uh, mm. delia puresii um and there's this massive excitement when it went on sale in 1874 it caused a complete sensation um and this was potentially the, the ancestor of every single cactus dahlia, and in France they call them uh, l'étoile du diable, the stars of the devil, that all of them could be descended from this one plant. But, excitingly, rather like snowdrops, there's all sorts of controversy with dahlias. Um, there's an alternative suggestion, it was an early Mexican cultivar that arrived via France, and in fact the idea of it being pulled out of a box of sort of slimy plant material, hijacked the similar story of the resurrection of the Catlia orchid, which again was brought back to life through sort of horticultural wizardry. But it is a really good story, so we'll go with that.
1: It's a fantastic story. And what one of the things I love about it is that even at that early stage in the history of, of the plant, there's already controversy sneaking into it. <laughs> Got to love a bit of controversy. Exactly, I love it. Well, I hope if anyone listening wasn't convinced about growing dahlias at the start of the podcast, they'll be completely sold on the idea by now. So if someone wants to start growing these flowers for themselves, what are a dahlia's basic requirements? And what can be done to keep them happy, um, productive and in the best of health?
2: Well... Dahlia's like lots and lots of light and warmth, warmer the better, really. And they also like mm. plenty of moisture, but they don't—they can't bear to be waterlogged. So the best thing in terms of soil and siting is give them lots of light and aim for that holy trinity of soil, which is the rich, moist and free draining. Um, you mm. start them in spring. Um, my preference is not to start them too early because there's a risk of frost and they're extremely frost tender.
1: You start them off inside, yeah? Yes,
2: yes. Um, either from tubers or as rooted cuttings. And when you do move them outside, you need to watch out for slugs and frost. Right. um, Because they are vulnerable to both. And I find that if you put them out in trays and you get them going and you put them outside, those cheeky slugs, they will sneak underneath the dahlia tuber and they'll hide there. And they'll come out at night and chew the tops off.
1: Slugs are the complete bane of my life. The dahlias in my own garden get completely munched by slugs. But they are particularly susceptible, aren't they? Particularly when they're young.
2: It's worth being aware of this and not being too downhearted because I've discovered firsthand that if a thalia is being munched by slugs and it's not looking too happy at all that if you move it somewhere safe make sure there's no slugs in it and put it somewhere light and warm it will generally grow back very quickly.
1: Oh that's a good tip.
2: Then when it's grown up to about uh, three to four pairs of leaves you pinch out the top to give yourself a nice um, bushy plant and then plant it out. You can put them in containers or grow them into the ground but It's really important, I think, if you don't want to use pesticides, is to get your plant as well grown as possible. Top tip. Yes, absolutely. Then you have to give it plenty of food and water, um, particularly, again, if they're in containers. So, um, at this time of year, you want a nice high potash feed, something like tomato feed. Um, But earlier in the year when they first start growing lots of nitrogen to get good big plants and plenty of leaves is the way forward. Right. Um and stake them if they get over about seventy five centimeters high or if they're on a windy site. Right. The cane to keep the plants upright and the flowers upright can be a, a useful thing.
1: Mm.
2: And then deadhead. Lots of deadheading because that will keep them flowering or flowering.
1: I think that's one of the things isn't it when people say oh you know they take a lot of work deadheading and stuff although people can see it as a downside that's one of the nice things about a plant that is so generous with its blooms is that it's always doing something and it's worth visiting it every day just to check how it's getting on and on those visits that you go to see how it is you come back rewarded with an armful of blooms for the whole of the end of summer into the beginning of autumn I think.
0: Well,
2: that's absolutely the case. I mean, in some ways, cutting for flower arrangements and and displays is just kind of slightly early deadheading, isn't it? So you can give yourself lots of lovely flowers um, and and the plant will still keep producing.
1: Yeah, that's brilliant advice. Thank you so much for that. And I think Dahlia's... They seem to be one of those plants that people, when they get the bug, they get it really bad um, to the extent that it becomes (laughs) all-consuming. And when that happens, you get a little obsessive and you start trying to consume as much information as you can get your hands on. Um, Now, I know that there are some really good resources for Dahlia information. Um, Where would you recommend people go to find out more and um, maybe even to see Dahlia's up close and personal
2: Well, there's this great online resource, which is dahliaworld.co.uk, which is a mine of information. There's all 60,000 or so uh, named varieties of dahlias on there. Um, and who bred them and so on um, there's a directory of suppliers so that's you know if you want to geek out that's a good place to go it's
1: fantastic
2: um there's the national collection of dahlias in penzance at the end of cornwall which has just got the most fantastic array of flowers they're oh. you know, all all the different forms i mean not every dahlia by any stretch of the imagination but if you want to compare and contrast and you know Fall in love, it's a brilliant place to go. Mm. Um, and they had a whole border of, of um, new dahlias they have grown from seed. Absolutely fantastic. So they're open, they've got actually a formal open day on the 26th of August.
1: I fancy going down myself, actually. OK, we now have some quickfire questions for you about dahlias, Naomi. Are you ready for these? I'm born ready. OK, here we go. Overwintering: lift or leave them in the ground.
2: Depends on geography and conditions. In light sandy soil in the south, um, you can get away with leaving them in. You cover them with a nice mulch of straw, bracken, or compost. If you're heavy soil, you're cold and wet, and it's often wet's the problem, not the cold. Yeah. Um, then it's probably better to bring them in. I mean, so if you go to lift them, um, you know, store them. Dry, make sure they're nice and dry, and store them in a cool, dry, dark place. Somewhere that's frost free, yes. and then bring them back into growth in to go from the spring. But as I said before, not too early, I think.
1: Yes, now that's good. And I think there's one thing that people, certainly near where I am, tend to forget, or if they're on heavy clay, which is the kind of soil we've got locally, is that you think if you mulch them really heavily they'll be all right to get through winter but it doesn't matter how much mulch you put on the top if you've got a soggy soil over winter you're just going to come back to mush in the spring
2: dahlias um, like cakes don't
1: like a soggy bottom no one likes a nobody soggy likes bottom. A <laughs> right next question five best dahlias for a fabulous display
2: well it's, mm. there are so many it's a very very personal thing right now in my own garden i'm loving david howard it's that unusual thing the decorative dahlia with dark foliage and I love it, Arabian Night. Oh, but there are so many other good ones. There's Magenta Star and Thomas A. Edison. There's lovely white long Cress and Hootenanny, which, you know, is just like a party in in, in the garden. No, but there's just so many. I, I don't think that's a fair
1: question. I know, it's an awful question. I do like, I quite like Everline, which is a kind of quite restrained for a dahlia, isn't it? It's sort of pure white with a little bit of... Purpley tinge to it.
2: But the pompons and small balls can be very restrained. No, that's true.
1: Um, no, that is true. That, that kind of blindsides you because they start looking almost a little sophisticated and you're thinking, what's going on here? And it's really big eh? <laughs> Exactly. I know, so much to choose from. Sorry, that was a mean question. But, you know, I think if people want to know the best dailies for a display, they could do worse than buy this <laughs> book I have on my desk. I think that's a brilliant I idea. I think it is as well. What about day th- You did mention containers earlier. Are there, um, I mean, some of these dailies get really big. But if people have a small garden or even a balcony or something, are are they completely cut out from the dahlia world or are there cultivars that they could get? Oh, no,
2: definitely. And there's this historic idea that um, dahlias are like huge, gangling, vast things that only support so much as scaffolding. But in actual fact, the breeders have cottoned on to the fact that we all live in much smaller, well, garden in much smaller gardens than the majority of us. So there are lots of lovely new small ones. There's the gallery series. There are about 25 different dahlias in this series. Oh. And they are well, just like real dailies, but smaller. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so they're compact and they're pretty. Um, and they're often they're decorative types and um, orchids and stuff like that. Yeah. So there's gallery art fair and gallery art deco, art nouveau. Um, and I personally love the Happy Singles, which are simple daisy flowers. They've got beautiful, rich colouring on dark foliage. Yeah. And I, I think they're absolutely lovely. And both of those will do very well in containers. But you know, basically, just pick a small one.
1: Absolutely. And as you said earlier on, remember, at this time of year, your high potash and tomato feed. And keep with the deadhead. Yeah, exactly. So, um, cut them for the vase or leave them in the garden? This is a good question.
2: Both. <laughs> <laughs> I flower best if you deadhead them. So the more you cut them, the more yeah. will grow. You you... Know, I don't know. I've got a vase of flowers downstairs and I, was, I knocked the top off of one of my dahlias in the garden yesterday and I thought, oh well. I sort of came in, I popped it into the vase and it revitalised the whole display. It's
1: fantastic, isn't it? And, and they have a really long vase life there, as well, don't they?
2: There are plants with a longer vase life, but hmm. you struggle to get something with quite so much impact, quite so much bling. And that's the case in the garden as well. Mm. The fantastic splashes of colour, the intensity of dahlias is really hard to beat.
1: Love them. I think they're fantastic. Oh, uh, there's one thing we haven't mentioned, and that's the, the question of earwigs. Now, uh, it's quite interesting. Earlier on in the year on Twitter, there was a whole discussion about where have all the earwigs gone? And this year, I'm starting to hear back from people saying, oh, I've got earwigs in my dahlias. Have, have you got any opinions on that?
2: Earwigs. Other an entomologists, I've never really met anybody who likes earwigs. Um, i don't mind them myself I'm no i don't like mind them either in business really but um but professional dahlia growers don't like them very much um they they're nocturnal mostly mm. and they do eat insect pests so there's something good to be said about earwigs but they do crawl into the little holes particularly in the um, the bald dahlias and they can nibble them and which if you're mm. if you're a show growing dahlia right. lover then that's you know slightly infra dig.
1: is there any kind of control for earwigs that's organic or do we just make sure we shake them out well yeah shake that
2: shake them out i mean certainly shake them out if you're going to if you're going to pick them for the house yeah i tend to operate a live and let live policy with with pests you know make sure i've got plenty of predators around but one of the more effective ways is to make sure yeah. they're not anywhere near lap fences where they have got places to hide so plant your dahlias away from you know sneaky earwig hiding right. spaces because um, they do like a dark, damp, cool yes. um, hold. Yeah, that's in.
1: a really good tip.
2: Um, or create a little day a wig trap um, mm. with a hidey hole with a straw-stuffed flower pot. Because they'll go, mm. oh, look, I shall hide in there, and I shall get the dahlias later. Little knowing that you're going to take the little um, flower pot and you're going to redeploy it somewhere oh, okay. else, um, away from your
1: dahlias where they something else. Pests. Excellent. I've got to say, I, I for one, I'm quite glad to see the earwigs coming back, actually.
2: I've got no real objection to earwigs. Um, I think everything good. has its place.
1: <laughs> glad to hear it. Naomi, thank you so much for coming on to the Virgin Garden podcast and sharing your love of dahlias. Um, where can people find you online?
2: I have a website, which is com, and on Twitter, you can find me at, at @naomi_slade. Slade. And of course, you can find me at all good bookshops online and in the flesh
1: absolutely thank you so much that's brilliant
2: very welcome great to talk to you
0: Naomi's latest book is called Dahlia's Beautiful Varieties for Home and Garden it's a beautiful and attractively designed volume illustrated throughout with gorgeous photography it's published by Pavilion and it's out in the shops now and I really think you should go and buy it You'll find a review of it on Andrew's blog at gardensweedsandwords.com. That
1: you will. But in the meantime, she's Letitia.
0: Oh, and he's Andrew. You can find me at letitiamcloof.com. That's laetitiamaklou
1: dot com. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at AndrewTimothyOB. OB. <laughs> Am I drunk? I know. Do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's t- better
0: when you're slightly drunk. There's darling. probably a tipping
1: point, isn't there, when it just gets. <laughs> 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 yes, yeah, <it can> <laughs>
0: indeed. I love it.